Today in Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through chapter 12, verse 12, we see a great conflict. A great conflict between this Jesus who has been hailed as the king and entered Jerusalem with great procession just a couple passages ago and came with great praise. And here he comes in conflict with the established religious and political authorities of his day in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is composed of the religious elite, and they served in, the, in Jerusalem and surrounding areas with great religious freedom over the people under Rome. They also had limited political power. They come to Jesus in this passage. They're approaching him. And Mark describes them as the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and together they compose the Sanhedrin. So let's read about this conflict here, starting in Mark 11, verse 27. Hear God's word. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him. But feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. The sermon tonight will follow the passage. The first bit in chapter 11 is the questioning. Then we get to the parable. But then chapter 12, verse 12, is a loaded verse. And we will get to that at the end. And that is titled, The Failure to Follow. So we'll look at the questioning, and then we'll look at the parable, and then we'll look at the failure to follow. In this questioning, 
the Sanhedrin, the religious elite, come to Jesus and they start asking about his authority. And it says in 11 verse 18, they heard what Jesus had done. This is from last week's passage. They heard what Jesus had done in the temple and they were seeking a way to destroy him. So as they come to speak to him, they're not coming truly to ask questions, but with the intent to destroy him. And this goes all the way back to chapter 3, verse 6, where it was made clear that the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. So since chapter 3, these religious elite have been consistent. They have been seeking to destroy Jesus. That is, of course, not the consistency that we hope to see among ourselves. We don't want to be those who are consistently seeking to destroy Jesus. Now, Jesus has had his fair share of confrontation against their corrupt leadership so far in the book of Mark. In fact, many of his healings and his cleansings have been in direct conflict with the way that they were running things there in Jerusalem and Judea and even up in Galilee. When he forgave sins in chapter 2, that was against their authority. When he had fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, when he gave the proper understanding of the Sabbath against their teachings, when he cut down the traditions of the elders, and then when he judged the temple itself as he came into Jerusalem, he was judging their leadership of the temple. And here in this passage, we see Jesus condemning the Sanhedrin itself directly. Jesus is engaging in this battle. The Sanhedrin, though, seems to be seeking to build a case against Jesus. The only other time that the Sanhedrin shows up in the book of Mark is when Jesus is on trial and they condemn him to die. And even then, it's because he's a blasphemer, because they don't believe his authority. And so the question of authority is still at hand in this passage. And the issue of authority shows how... how set their hearts are against Jesus. So that's why they asked him about authority, because if they could prove that he is coming with false religious authority, that's guilty of capital punishment. If he's claiming religious authority that is false, it is grounds for capital punishment. So they are seeking to build a case against Jesus that they might kill him as they have been trying to do since chapter three. So they ask him by what authority are you doing these things? Again, this is a disingenuous question. They're trying to trap him. And we're going to see that in the way that they respond. They really do not care about Jesus's answer. So Jesus responds with a question. He does not answer their question. And so we have to ask, is Jesus just being difficult? No, of course not. Jesus is acting as was normal for a rabbi to do. He responds with a question. And we're going to see that his question really gets to the heart of their question much better than a direct answer would have done. Look how masterfully his question about baptism gets to the question of authority. In verse 30, he says, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So he doesn't respond asking whether the authority of Hillel or Shammai, these other Jewish schools, he, he's not appealing to those types of authorities. He goes straight to two options. It's either from heaven or it's from man. And when he says from heaven, he means from God. 
He's respecting their way of speaking, which would um, revere the name of God to the point that they would not mention it. So therefore, Jesus says, from heaven, meaning from God. So is John the Baptist, is, was his baptism from God or was it from man? And now the Sanhedrin has a decision to make and an answer to figure out. Option one is from heaven, from God himself. If the Sanhedrin affirms that John the Baptist's baptism was from heaven, then they affirm John the Baptist's message of repentance, and they affirm his message that the one who comes after him, whose sandals he is not worthy to stoop down and untie, is greater than he is. If they say that John the Baptist's message is from heaven, then they must also affirm that Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist was from heaven where the dove descended on him, where the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. If the Sanhedrin affirms John's baptism, they affirm that Jesus is God's beloved son. You see how masterfully Jesus' question is getting to the heart of authority. If they can answer this question about baptism, about the message, about the prophecies from John the Baptist about Jesus, then they will be revealing what they believe about Jesus's authority. They have another option. They could say that John the Baptist was just another man. But the problem was the people believed that John the Baptist was truly a prophet. And the Sanhedrin does not want to set themselves against popular opinion because they might lose their popularity and their power. But if they affirm that John the Baptist's authority was from heaven, they would lose all religious authority. They would lose all power because Jesus would be proven to be the one who is himself from heaven. So they are stuck. If they're not willing to submit to the authority of Jesus, they are stuck and they say, we don't know. The loss of support from the people would have been a great threat to their comfortable possessions the possessions of power and they, and their kingdoms of self-glorification that they had built where they were ruling over these people unjustly, which makes me wonder what kinds of comforts and pet sins do we hold on to even in the face of Jesus's authority. Even when we come face to face with the authority of Jesus Christ, how often do we deny his authority so that we might hold on to our comfortable possessions of power and our comforts and our pet sins? How frequently do we reject divine authority? Let's dive in a little deeper into this questioning and the way the Sanhedrin responded because they obviously were afraid of the people. Mark tells us twice that they're afraid of the people. In chapter 11, verse 32, it says they were afraid of the people. And then the very last verse, 12, 12, says, but they feared the people. And Mark tells us that they were discussing it with one another And Mark gives us a glimpse into what they were actually discussing. And they weren't discussing Jesus's authority as much as they were discussing what people might think about their answers. This word discussed, when Mark uses it, it's always in reference to people who are trying to evade Jesus's authority. So here, the Sanhedrin is trying to evade Jesus's authority with this discussion. It's really a type of scheming to get out from Jesus's teachings. It's not a true consideration of Jesus's words. They're trying to figure out what would make them look best in public eyes. We see they are driven primarily by this fear of man. They care first and foremost about what other people think of them. 
And that means they're not actually in pursuit of truth because they believe that salvation comes from other people or from worldly success or power or greatness. And therefore, as they speak with God himself in this passage, they are not honest with God because they are too clouded by their fear of other men. And if Jesus were to come straight out and tell them by what authority he was doing all these things from heaven, from the right hand of God, it seems that they would still only register whatever serves their agenda. They're not interested in the truth. Jesus says, so then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They've heard his claims to a heavenly authority. They know the stories of his healings. They've heard of his authoritative teaching. They've heard about his baptism. Jesus knows that no matter what he tells them, they've chosen their stance against him. And if he told them that his authority was from heaven, they would accuse him of blasphemy right there. And perhaps expedite the trial that would happen a few days later. What about us? Do we fear God or do we fear people? When I was in college, I had a, a mentor, a professor at Covenant College who saw right through the sham that I was able to put up and knew that I had a huge issue of fearing people. So he went through this book with me. It's called When People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch. It's a, it's a wonderful read. It's a convicting read. And I want to read some of the diagnostic questions that come from the beginning of this book that help us see whether we are afraid more of people and we care more about affirmation from people or whether we care more about acceptance from God. And of course, only God's acceptance matters. But ask yourself some of these questions. They might expose whether you too have fear of man. Are you driven by your perceived success? Do you want people to perceive that you are successful? Or are you overcommitted and unable to say no? Do you view your spouse or your potential spouse or the thought of a spouse as someone from whom you primarily need something? Are you afraid that you might be revealed as an imposter? Do you second guess your decisions because of what other people might think of your decisions? Do you feel empty or meaningless? Do you get easily embarrassed? Do you tell the little white lies to try to cover up? Are you jealous of other people? Do other people make you angry or upset? Or do you avoid people? Even if you avoid people, they still control you. Jesus has so much more to offer than this fear of man. When we're so controlled by what other people think, those, those are the exact things that we ought to surrender to the Savior who is willing to love us no matter who we are. Let's look at the parable. We'll keep diving deeper. Jesus' parable that he tells here starting in chapter 12 also addresses the question of authority. He's going to continue to get to the heart of what's going on in this conversation with the Sanhedrin. In this parable, a man planted a vineyard, and then he leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when it was time for the fruit, the owner wanted some of the fruit from the vineyard, so he sent messengers. But the tenants who were renting it, who were taking care of the place, 
abused the messengers, sent them back empty-handed, or killed them. Until finally, the owner sent his beloved son. He sent his beloved son to these tenants, and once again the tenants killed him. As with the fig tree last week that represented Israel, we also see Israel represented by the vineyard this week. And this we know from Isaiah chapter 5. Listen to God making his vineyard in Isaiah 5. He says, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now listen to verse 7 of Isaiah 5. This is a comparison between the vineyard and Israel. And it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Jesus by using this parable, was comparing the Sanhedrin to the wicked tenants who abused the people of God as the bad shepherds did the vineyard. In Jeremiah 12, it says, Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They've trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. Jesus is calling out the chief priests and the scribes and the elders right there in front of him. As the kids say these days, shots fired. This is a conflict, and he is calling them out directly by using this parable. This is a theme in the Old Testament, a dangerous thing to be associated with. In Jeremiah 23, it says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. And in Ezekiel 34, Because the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed the sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. For God to be against the shepherds is a terrifying thing if you are that shepherd. So here the Sanhedrin was being accused of being the bad shepherds by God himself on their own turf in Jerusalem. This parable that Jesus tells answers the question that the Sanhedrin had just asked. They are the ones who had abused and killed messengers that God had sent to them. They had ignored the prophets and they had beheaded John the Baptist as we read in Mark 6. But the issue at hand is how are they going to treat the son of the owner now that he's here? The son of the owner has arrived. The tenants in the parable said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. We see the intent of their heart. We see they have no regard even for the son. But because Jesus has told the parable like this, the tenants knew that this was the son of the owner. The Sanhedrin knew that this is the son of God and killed him anyway. The son of God was sent with heavenly authority, yet even him they killed. But Jesus was not surprised because his quote there at the end It's set aside as a a poem-type structure in in my uh, ESV copy. Starting in verse 10, Jesus says, Have you not read this scripture? 
And this is the part that, that makes it clear. Jesus was not surprised. It's been prophesied. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You, Sanhedrin, are the wicked tenants, and you are the builders, and you have rejected the cornerstone. This is an indictment of great proportions. You're the builders. You're supposed to be caring for the house of Israel and for the the vineyard, but you have rejected the stone that has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone is critical for the integrity of a structure. It's a massive block. It's synonymous with the foundation stone. Just like the vineyard had been taken from the tenants and given to others, so the Sanhedrin no longer has authority over access to God and his kingdom because they've rejected the cornerstone. The vineyard was given to the apostles. The vineyard was given to all who have faith in Jesus. And we continue to live in that vineyard. We pray that we would be faithful. And how true does this psalm become when Jesus, the cornerstone, is rejected even unto death in a few chapters by these very ones? How is it, though, in verse 11, that this rejection of the cornerstone, that the death of the Son of God was going to be something good? Because in verse 11, it says, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. How could this be good? It's because what even, even what man meant for evil, God intends for good. We have a sovereign God who works through the difficult and hard things to bring about what is good. And it's because the rejection of the cornerstone, Jesus himself, in that came salvation for all who believe. In that, the one man suffered for the sins of many. The salvation is marvelous. Praise the Lord that he has done it. And Paul shows us what it looks like now that we're on this side of the cross in Ephesians 2. He says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a beautiful promise that as we gather here, we're gathering as the temple built on Jesus Christ, not on the bad shepherds, the Sanhedrin, not on the bad leaders of Israel. I must point out, there's still hope for the Sanhedrin. At this point in the story, there's still hope. There's still an invitation built into the way Jesus is communicating with them. An invitation that they might believe. They might not be interested in honest truth before God in chapter 11. They might be too caught up in what others think of them. They might have rejected the messenger, John the Baptist. They might be the bad shepherds who have ruined the vineyard of Israel. They might be consistent since chapter 3. They might be set in their ways and their intent to destroy Jesus. But there is still hope, even for people like this, if they repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is exactly what Jesus has been proclaiming since chapter 1. That's why he's here, to tell even people like this that if you believe, there is life. There is hope. 
he engaged with them in honest conversation here in this passage. By their failure to be honest, he then did not give them the answer they were asking for, but they had the chance. And he spoke in a parable. Yes, and parables are meant to conceal to some, but they are also meant to reveal deep truths to those who have ears to hear. And then he mentions that marvelous salvation that's coming that the Lord has done, even though the builders will reject the cornerstone, there's a, there's a promise of salvation. So Jesus is still inviting them to believe. And we know he will not turn away any who desires to follow him. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. That's been his message all along. But in verse 12, we get the worst news of the day. The way Mark writes it, the ending of verse 12 hits the ears and it hits the heart the way a dissonant chord lingers and fades into silence. It says, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They were seeking to arrest him. The Sanhedrin condemns itself right here by doing exactly what the parable of the tenants had said they were going to do. Jesus had just said the Son of Man is going to come and you're going to kill him. And that is exactly what they seek to do in the very next verse. They sought to arrest and ultimately destroy the Son of God. And they will proceed to do so in a few chapters. Mark also tells us in verse 12, for they had perceived that he had told the parable against them. You know, it's actually, this, this is a huge moment in the book of Mark because not once yet have the, the religious leaders been described as perceiving or understanding or seeing. This is the first time they perceive in 12 chapters. This is the moment which for so many leads to throwing off the cloak forsaking everything that lies behind and following Jesus. The moment of perception. They finally realize that Jesus is speaking of them and they see their sin thrown up in their face. Maybe this is the moment that they, under the conviction of their sin, would also follow Jesus like the Syrophoenician woman, like Jairus, like the bleeding woman, like blind Bartimaeus who followed him on the way. Maybe they, like the disciples, will leave everything behind and follow him. After all, this is a great salvation, which is marvelous in our eyes. It's the Lord's doing. It was just announced. This is King Jesus, whose kingdom is at hand. All it takes is repent and believe. This is the moment of decision. With their own sins right in front of their face, what are they going to do with them? But they deny it all. They chose to harden their hearts even further, and they decided not to follow Instead, Mark says, so they left him and went away. With such a heartbreaking stubbornness on the part of the religious leaders, it's jarring to read. To Mark's readers, to us, as we go through this. But what about us? Now that you've heard about Jesus, if you've not yet, you have to decide if you're going to throw off your cloak, your worldly belongings and attachments, and follow this Jesus on the way, to sell all that you have and give to the poor and repent of your mistreatment of the Son of God and follow Him, 
that offer stands. No matter how consistent you've been in your rejection of Jesus, there's an all-encompassing flood of God's grace that can be yours by faith. Look to Jesus and believe him. Do not fail to follow anymore. The religious leaders failed to follow. They surrendered then this access to grace. We have a great high priest who intercedes for us, who comforts us by his spirit, by whom we can pray to God, the one who forgives us of our sins. So if you've not yet, follow Jesus. And for those who have decided already to throw off the world and to follow Jesus, to give up everything that this world has to offer, this passage reminds us of the stubbornness of our sinful hard hearts. How even as believers, we need to consider where we perceive the truth about Jesus but fail to live obediently because we continue to fight with that sin nature until that last day. We might not say that we want to destroy Jesus, but you know the spots in your life where you continue to push away what you know is true. You might not say that you want to arrest Jesus, but you do want to stop him from interfering with your plans and your sins and your comforts. Good news is Jesus has not left us alone in this following. He's given us one another, but he's given us his spirit who dwells in us, who's building us up into a temple. And when the Spirit of Christ convicts you of sin, makes it clear as day that you are like the Sanhedrin, the one who has mistreated the Son, when that sin is there in your face, and you realize that your sin is not just choking you, but it is an offense against the Savior, are you going to follow Jesus, or are you going to double down in your hardness of heart again today? This is the battle. We're in it together, and by the Spirit's strength, we can become more like Christ, and we can follow Him on the way every day. Many of you have walked with the Lord for decades, and you've seen growth. You've seen what a blessing it is that the Spirit chips away at your sinfulness. And you know how difficult it is in the moment to surrender a part of your heart, part of your desires, a part of this world. You know how difficult that can be, yet you know how sweet it is to have that habit or that tendency or that spiritual callous removed from your life and to be made more like Jesus. Brothers and sisters here tonight, we know that Jesus' authority is from heaven, from God himself. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation of eternal life. Would we not fail to follow today? May we let down our guard against God's word, the guards that we set up so that it doesn't come too far or interfere too much with our lives. Would we let down that guard and would we listen to his spirit and live in his spirit? And rather than continually trying to brush aside the messages from God that we don't like, let's humble ourselves to his instruction. Let's receive his truth. Receive again the gracious work of the spirit by which we become more like Christ little by little until that last day when we come to completion. I look forward to that day. Let's follow him. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending with all authority in heaven on earth your Son, Jesus Christ. Would we, by him, go and make disciples of all nations? 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that you have commanded and would we ourselves follow in that obedience. We pray that we would not be like the Sanhedrin whose hearts are hardened even as we know the truth in front of our faces. Would you by your Spirit humble us, soften us, and draw us near every day. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.